ora. I'm Laura Clark, the British High Commissioner to New Zealand. Welcome to another episode of Tea with the High Commission, the British High Commission's podcast, where we interview a range of interesting people talking about anything and everything, and in the process discover the great connections between the UK and New Zealand. Kia ora koutou, no mai haere mai. Welcome to our latest episode of Tea with the High Commission. And our guest today is Rebecca Kitteridge, who is the Director General of the New Zealand Security Intelligence Service. Uh, and prior to this, Rebecca worked for six years as Secretary of the Cabinet and Clerk of the Executive Council within New Zealand's Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet. And she's also worked in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade and had a range of other roles, including in the private sector, uh, before that. Uh, Rebecca was appointed Commander of the Royal Victorian Order in recognition of her service to the Queen as Cabinet Secretary and Clerk of the Executive Council in March 2014. And she won the Public Policy Award in the New Zealand Women of Influence Awards in 2017. Um, I've known Rebecca since I started here in, in Wellington and I can also attest that in her office she has a wonderful array of miniature James Bond cars. So welcome, Rebecca. It's lovely to have you with us. And thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Wonderful. I wonder if we can start um, with NZSIS um, for beginners, if you like. Can you tell us what is it that your organisation does and why is that important? Sure. So in countries around the world, um, governments generally have um, uh, an organisation that's responsible for its internal security. It's different from the police force, it's actually about uh, understanding what, what is going on in the country that might be of national security concern, and that is, that is a, a big focus for us. We're also a human intelligence organisation, which means that our focus is actually on working through people, understanding what is going on in, in our communities that may be of security concern. So that might be counter-terrorism uh, focus, or it could be that we are looking at foreign interference in our communities and in our institutions of government. It may mean that we, we look at the potential for espionage, those kinds of things. We also have a really important role in providing protective security advice to, to government and to other organisations uh, across New Zealand to help them protect themselves from particularly state-sponsored types of efforts to uh, obtain their information, their intellectual property and, and so on. Uh, we run the security clearance process right across government, which is quite a big effort as well. Um, so it's, it's quite a busy organisation, especially uh, because we are quite petite, uh, especially compared with our Five Eyes counterparts. And it's a, so it's a rich menu of things to worry about and work on. And I also know from my work on some of these issues in the UK, of course, and my work as a diplomat, work closely alongside the intelligence community, I know that often when organisations like yours are doing their job really well, the result is that nothing happens. True. And so often a success is a terrorist plot that doesn't reach fruition or other sorts of interference or activity that could have caused harm that then doesn't happen. And so I suppose then sometimes the, the challenge is how do you communicate the benefit of that work 
to the public? How do you sort of explain why it's important? And I've been struck since I arrived here that in, there's a bit of a contrast in New Zealand versus in the UK. In the UK, there's quite a wide acceptance of the, of the need for intelligence work because we've had the Cold War on our doorstep. We've had um, terrorism, uh, whether from Northern Ireland or Islamic terrorism. And there's just that sense, I suppose, that this work is needed. But New Zealand has felt for a long time far away from some of these big threats. And so perhaps there's less public acceptance. Do you think that's changed? Do you think the March terrorism attack changed that? And what has your work been to, to do that public-facing work? It is a real challenge in a country like New Zealand. And I, I think we're so blessed to live in a country that has largely been perceived as being very safe and secure. And we have a giant moat around us, which also provides a certain amount of physical protection mm. for the country. And I think that has possibly led New Zealanders to be a bit complacent about what might be going on uh, in terms of national security in our country. And it's, it's a difficult one to know how to address, actually, because as you say, um, the successes generally, it's difficult to talk about them. Mm. Um, and there is a lot of work in the time that I've been in the service and looking back at its history that we should be tremendously proud of, things that New Zealanders would be really delighted to see and, and would be pleased to know that we had, there was an organisation working so hard to keep the country safe and that actual things were happening that needed to be guarded against or disrupted and we have definitely done uh, things in the counter-terrorism area, in the espionage area, in the, in the interference area. And the question is, what is it possible to say publicly? I've taken the approach that I do, I want to be more open about the service, about what we do to the extent that we can. I think we can push the boundaries a bit. I mean, my dream actually is to have a reality TV show, which I would just love to have. <laughs> people could actually come into the building and see our fabulous people doing their cool creative work. I suspect we're a long way off that. But nonetheless, I think we can push the boundaries a bit. And I have tried to do that. And so has my counterpart, Andrew Hampton, in the... Um, in our, in our sister agency, the GCSB. So we do talk publicly and we give speeches and we engage with people. It is possible to describe in general terms the work, why we do it and how it helps the country. You asked about March the 15th and I do want to acknowledge that that was, I think, something of a watershed moment mm. for New Zealand. It was uh, a, a terrible day for the country. It was a ghastly day for the Muslim communities that lost so many loved ones. And it was also a, a terrible day for the, for the NZSIS because this is what we, you know, the people that go to work there, go to work every day to prevent uh, mm. anything like that happening to the country. Um, and so, you know, it was just a terrible, terrible thing. And we have looked very, very, hard at ourselves since then to say, was there anything that we could have done? Um, was there anything that could have been done to prevent that attack? Of course, those questions are for the Royal Commission, and, and it's really important that the Royal Commission does its work, and we've been very forward-leaning and cooperative in terms of giving them all of our information so they can make that assessment. But you know, I do think that what it says to us, and what it should say to us as a country, is that actually things can happen here, and we shouldn't assume that they can't you know, this is, there are real threats to actual New Zealanders that do affect potentially their lives um, and, and entire communities that can be devastated by these kinds of events. And when I look around the world, I don't see things getting any more peaceful. Mm. I don't see things getting any less complicated. And in a security sense, it's important that we as a country talk more about this, face it more, 
clearly and decide how we want, you know, what kind of settings do we want mm. to have to prevent these things happening to us. But if one thing comes out of it, which is that New Zealanders talk about this more, I think that will be good. No country is immune from any of these threats. And I think that's that need for a public conversation and to reflect is really important. Because we do make choices about what, you know, the all the Five Eyes countries. Our settings, our legal settings and the public support or the public licence to operate, for us to operate, is quite transparent. It's very clear to the public what our laws are. They know that, you know, what we can do and what we can't do, that is all in the public domain. And who authorises it. Who authorises it and who oversees it. And we have independent oversight that is, you know, all of these things should give the public confidence that they determine what the public determines through the democratically elected parliament and the and the government how much they they how much power and legal authority they want us to have and we will operate to the full within that but no more absolutely and i think that probably in the popular consciousness you know because of what you see in films that sense of actually a proper bureaucratic system yes. being applied around it proper frameworks and always working according to the law set out and the framework set out that's perhaps not always as understood so it goes back to your point about lots of the work might be secret but you can still be very transparent about the overall purpose of this work and and the, the framework in which it operates so, um, amazingly in the bond films or in um Homeland, the series, you don't see the hours and hours that the, the, the you know, the, the, the intelligence officers spend, you know, filling out, um, you know, detailed all, all forms, detailed forms authorization that, exactly. that, that the authorization yeah. is necessary and lawful and justified and proportionate and um, that being checked by their manager in the legal section and you know coming to me yeah. and, and then to the minister and so on you know people don't see that no jack bauer's not big on that in 24 no. either exactly <laughs> yeah yeah so you've mentioned five eyes and i think that's perhaps the best known mm. intelligence grouping and of course the uk is a member of five eyes along with australia Canada, New Zealand, US. Can you talk a little bit about the genesis of that grouping and what value it brings to New Zealand? Well, it is a hugely important alliance for New Zealand and the relationship is very long-standing. It has its genesis in the Second World War and the post-war construct, really. New Zealand joined in the, in the 1950s and has been a very, you know, a very active uh, partner ever since. And I suppose when I think about it, to me, the Alliance has its basis in some fundamental human rights values, actually, and which was so important in that post-war framework. And the, the countries that are part of it, they're democracies, are proponents of uh, human rights and the rule of law, and those things are incredibly important. And what it, what it means is that we are able to, there's a lot of trust in the group and there is a sharing of information in the group and intelligence within the group in a way that I think is unique around the world. Mm -hmm. It's hugely beneficial to New Zealand, but I think it's a benefit to all of the partners because what it means is that there is a network of like-minded countries around the world that through successive administrations with you know, quite different political perspectives, there is an enduring sense that this is important because it supports these fundamental values. But I do also want to make the point that each of the countries does have its own elected, you know, elected leadership, mm. its own administration. They, they differ over time, they have different, uh, they often have you know, different perspectives. It shouldn't be seen as have just one objective. Mm. I mean, mm. and I think that's important because New Zealand has its own independent foreign policy, so does the United Kingdom, and we will pursue those objectives in accordance with our own national interests. That will always be the case. Um, it's also important to note 
that New Zealand does not will not just do um, the bidding of any of the other partners and nor would we ever ask any of the others to do our bidding or to try to do anything that we couldn't do ourselves lawfully. There are some really clear rules around all of that. Um, but having said that, uh, if, if our interests um, are aligned as they often are, then there is a lot that we can do in common that will help us to achieve objectives that are you know, very clearly in New Zealand's interests and we, and we try to be very forward-leaning into that space. Yeah, it's interesting. It's all about that shared investment in the rules-based international yes. order and in stability and yes. security and those, and those values and therefore how together we can compare notes, share information, compare approaches and, and work together to increase our chances of... Of, of achieving those goals. And yeah. the other thing to note is that it's not just an intelligence partnership. There is also, it also flows into other important areas of our work. So for example, in the defence sphere or in um, the Absolutely. border agencies. Home affairs ministers. Exactly. And now even finance like, ministers. Yes. And I think it's interesting. It is just a very useful forum for comparing notes. Right. And it goes far beyond perhaps what mm. the original grouping was, which was largely focused on intelligence cooperation. How is that? Because I know that in that a lot of that work is also relationships yes. based and you get together once a year for conferences. How has that been affected by COVID? Well actually we, we meet at all levels all the time. So it's a you know the relationships happen right for the assessment people, the investigators, the, you know, the technical people, they've all got their own relationships mm. across the agency, so it's very, very live all the time. Um, COVID has been something of a, you know, a difficulty because it's not possible really to travel now internationally. But, um, you know, we have good relationships across, you know, we have people to people, we, we have people in, in each other's countries that can talk to each other and, um, and of course we have secure BTCs mm. uh, that we can use, but it's not the same, I have to say. Mm. Not quite the same. Never quite the same, is it? Because sometimes the most useful conversations are the one had during a coffee break or right. over yeah. a glass of wine of an so evening. I'm, I know we are all looking forward very much to being able to, to get together physically again. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk a bit about diversity. So you're the, you're the first female DG, I think, of your organisation. But I want to talk about gender diversity, but also diversity more broadly. And I really liked... Your, your description earlier on in our conversation of you know, what gets people up in the morning, the reason they come into work is they want to keep New Zealand safe and that's why Christchurch is so devastating, anything like that is so devastating because that overall aim is to work to keep New Zealand safe. Is there a typical personality working in your organisation or have you got people of all walks of life and would you say that you are, your organisation is representative of modern New Zealand? That's a lot of questions yeah. in one package, well, sorry. I'll start where we are now, mm. and then I'll talk about our aspirations. Mm. So, and, and actually, well, I'll start with my, my fundamental view about this, which is that we should reflect the community that we serve. And that is hugely important because it means that we have the greatest diversity of perspectives being brought to our work. Uh, we have a greater understanding of the communities that we serve. We, it means that we have got more ideas coming into our discussions than would otherwise be the case. It helps us to avoid groupthink um, and in general just makes a livelier kind of you know, environment, which is really, really important. So for all of those reasons, it's massively important that we have a diverse um, uh, workforce. Are we there now? Not where I want to be, mm. um, but we have made progress. And so I guess about, we would be, it would be close on 50% of the people that work within the service are women, for example. Um, at the moment, only a third in the senior management um, are women. So that's something that I'm 
very keen to uh, keep on pushing. It has improved, but it needs to be even better. Um, and in terms of the other elements of diversity, we've been looking at this really hard. We have a diversity and inclusion strategy, which is publicly available if people uh, want to see it. And so we've been working on recruiting and retaining a more diverse staff, and that's across the Rainbow community, where we have a wonderful group called Standing Out that are our, our Rainbow uh, staff. It, we have a, a group called Kahikatea, which is uh, ethnic staff um, and a women's group. So there's quite a lot going on within the service and across the community as a whole. But we still don't get the number of people applying for roles within the service from a, from a broad mm. and, and mm. varied background. Mm. So we did some research uh, earlier this year or end of last year to, to find out why that is. Why are people not applying from all of these different so communities? So saying, for example, Maori, Pacifica, yeah, exactly. Asian communities. Which we really want, yeah, absolutely. To, we want to see more people coming through. And what it showed is that there was a lack of awareness that this is even a possibility for, for those groups. Mm. And they have a sense that it's kind of elite, that it's not something that would be possible for them because mm. it's a kind of elitist thing. I mean, I, I found mm. that really interesting. Mm. And what it means is that we now have some information that means that we can try and bust those bust myths. Bust those stereotypes, yeah, absolutely. Because it's yeah. not like that at all. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we are keen to have bright, able, interested people from all walks of life and we will train them. So, you know, there's no, yeah. it doesn't matter where you come from. I think perhaps in lots of these organisations, I'd say the same is true for the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, my organisation, is that there's a legacy, I suppose, of what these organisations used to be like, because they would have all been in the old days, elite white men uh, working together. And, and, and even though that has changed a lot, those perceptions endure to a certain extent. And in my organisation, if you got married, you had to resign. And that marriage bar existed until 1973. Um, and there was a real challenge around race in the organisation and a sense that there was a sort of security issue. So there's a bit, we've done a huge amount of progress in our organisations. But then you need to be communicating that externally yeah. and broadening that appeal so that you keep making that progress. Mm. And there's one area that I'm feeling quite proud about, mm. which is I've mentioned our Standing Out Committee. So we received the Rainbow Tick probably two years ago now, or 18 months ago, but we've also, we're finalists in the Rainbow Excellence Awards that are coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, and so I'm really excited about that. That's uh, it's fantastic. the whole community, it's not just NBSAS, but GCSB yeah. too, so Great. cross your fingers for Absolutely, us. and look out. Yeah, mm. wonderful. Now, this is meant to, we're recording this um, podcast on an extraordinarily windy yes. uh, Wellington day. It probably sounds like the building's about to blow over. But it is also Mental Health Awareness Week. And, you know, on a job like yours with enormous responsibility and where the stakes are really high and things, of course, can go devastatingly wrong. And so you've got a very rich menu of things to worry about. How do you, faced with all of that, relax and unwind and find humour and really just keep your balance? Family is always incredibly mm. important. So, you know, that, that's actually my sanctuary every day. I make sure I get home for dinner every night because I think that's eating together and to the extent that I can, sharing, um, you know, kind of how the day went is and listening to how their days went is mm. really, really important. But I also, okay, confession here, I really love to sing and so I have a choir um, that oh, meets wonderful. at my home. It's an a cappella choir, about 12 of us. And so that, even on the days when I'm the tiredest and, or it's been very, very stressful, I find that that, that experience of singing with other people always makes me feel fabulous. Mm. So highly recommended. Those of you out there who are, have any stresses at all, join a choir. 
Yeah. I mean, singing is so good. You just yeah. always feel better afterwards, yeah. don't I you? I suppose I shouldn't say this in the COVID world where actually the choirs are being, you know, <laughs> struggling because they're all meeting by yes. Zoom. But, and and the, Zoom, Zoom is not very good for music, is Not it? very good for music, mm. but fortunately we here in New Zealand are, are still very, able to meet and sing. Very COVID. lucky, absolutely. Wonderful. So my last question, and thank you so much for the conversation. My last question is... Are you looking forward to the next James Bond movie? Are you a James Bond fan? Or does it all seem a bit too ridiculous to you? Well, while it does not bear a great deal of um, similarity to anything that I see my people doing, um, of course it's fabulous entertainment. And what's not to love for going out for an hour and a half of pure escapism? And speaking of mental health, you can't beat it. Absolutely. And who is your pick for the next James Bond? Ooh, controversial. And what can you do to engineer that? Oh, well, obviously our powers know no bounds. At all. Yes, no. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure I can. I'm not sure I can. Uh, I can. I can pick it because I'm still actually very emotionally bonded to Daniel Craig. There so we are. Hard to get over we'll keep him in the role for now. Then. <laughs> lovely. Thanks very much, Rebecca. It's been no, lovely talking to you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review as it helps others find us. And remember, you can subscribe to us by searching for Tea with the High Commission on iTunes or Spotify. Thank you. Kakiti anō.